This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we're talking about the future of finance, a big topic, and what Wall Street and Silicon Valley have to learn from each other. Our guest is none other than Marty Chavez, Global Co-Head of the Securities Division. Marty, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jake. Or welcome back to the program, as it were. So let's get right into it. What's the future of financial services looking ahead, say, 10 years? One thing I would caveat and say, just for starters, that I have unbelievably sharp and precise visions of the future and terrible timing. So I'll say this is the future state of finance. But as for does finance look like this five years from now, 10 years from now, 15, 20, I'm not going to say too much about the time frame. But it's really clear where it's going. We've all grown up with traditional categories, usually dichotomies in the financial ecosystem. So here's one, buy side and sell side. Another one might be market infrastructure providers, such as the exchanges and clearinghouses, and then everybody who uses the market infrastructure, so providers and users. We could say the same thing about market data. There are companies that sell it and companies that buy it. That's how we've always thought about those things. Now, if you look inside financial services firms, you'll find that there's traditionally been a relatively small number of roles that we talk about. So there'd be bankers, salespeople, and traders. Now, all of those simple, easy categories are going away, and they're going away fast, and it's becoming much more complicated and much more multidimensional. So you can't just say, well, we're a sell-side firm and the buy-side is our clients and other sell-side firms are our competitors. It actually has always been much more complicated than that. The big systemically important banks have asset management arms generally, and the biggest liquidity providers to those asset management arms will be the securities divisions of their arch rivals. So we've all been doing this for a long time. There's always been a dependency on the custodian banks, on banks that provide payment services, transaction services of various kinds. So it hasn't been this strictly you're our client or you're our competitor for a long time, but it's becoming much more complicated. And so I would say all the traditional notions of you're my competitor are giving away to something that looks much more like Coopetition, maybe not my favorite word, but you compete in some areas and you cooperate in some other areas. In some other areas, you might be a client or they might be a client. So talk about it specifically in like the market data space. In the past, banks were buyers or sell-side firms were buyers of market data, but they also generate a lot of data. So how might that evolve? Yes, exactly. Well, that's a perfect example, right? So, so the notion that there are some firms that are in the business of selling data and everybody else buys it, that's changing right now. And so financial services firms have become keenly aware that there are vast amounts of data. This data is something that you have to be exquisitely careful with. The standard of care is like the standard of care for medical records, right? And the data might belong to your clients or it might belong to you or it might be something that you share. But in any case, you have to protect it and just anonymizing it isn't enough. The standard of what you do with that data and how you safeguard it and appropriate ways to generate derived data sets from it 
and analytics from it is a really complicated topic, but it's definitely becoming the case that essentially everybody is in the data creation business and potentially the data provision business. And so how I would think about the future state of the financial system as follows to make a simple way of navigating this complex multidimensional space, I would say to every firm and certainly to all the firms in the financial ecosystem, where do you wish to be, do you aspire to be, or, or must you be the best provider of some service? And then focus your business on that. Be top three in the provision of that service. And then look at all the other services that you're probably doing in-house right now because we've always done it that way and you didn't have any other options for a long time and have a hard look at them and say, that's not our business. We do not want to be providing those services and we don't want to be providing them even to ourselves because the scale economics don't work if we're doing it in-house and there's one customer, which is us. And so there you're going to want to become an astute consumer of services that are provided by others and you're going to want to have choices and you're going to have service level agreements. So really where we see all this going is what a computer scientist would call a big refactoring of all the assets in the financial system, all the participants, which have traditionally been vertically integrated into monoliths, into silos, where you did front, middle, and back office because you didn't have any other choices. And now it's going to be much more about application programming interfaces, which define exactly how you produce a service and how you consume a service together with service level agreements. So the whole thing is reorganizing itself around these API boundaries. Some markets are further along to digitization mm -hmm. and others have sort of resisted over time. So which markets will be the hardest to bring along? Which markets are further ahead in this transformation that you're seeing? Often you'll hear people say the markets that electronify or that will electronify are the ones that have exchanges or that have some kind of central limit order book. And, well, that certainly seems sensible because we're used to thinking about equities market structure, particularly in the U.S. and in Europe and in Asia, as one that's centered on exchanges. And we know that there's low latency trading and we know that there's electronic order books and it's well understood that equities has electronified, or at least that's one way to frame it. But it is not accurate to say that the electronification of a market depends on whether that market has an exchange market structure. Actually, the key is whether the workflow is electronic and whether the workflow is digitized, and it's digitized at the right level of abstraction. By that I mean, if the workflow in a particular business consists of human beings talking to each other over the phone, well, you could say it's digitized in the trivial sense that we know the telephone conversations are all ultimately digital signals, but the digitization isn't happening at the level of the conversation. And so in those markets where it consists of people talking to each other on the phone, all of the data, all of the workflow 
is actually just dissipating out into the atmosphere, right? You say the word. Sounds words like my and, job. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's dissipating. Very good. The instant <laughs> you say it. On the other hand, when the information is captured in tools and in systems and in platforms, and that, of course, is more likely to happen when there's exchanges, but does not require exchanges. So when the workflow is there in a digital form, then you're able to analyze the workflow and you're able to streamline it and you're able to infer data structures and derive data sets from it. And that's what starts the whole flywheel of electronifying a market. And so I would look at the markets where the entire market structure, the entire exchange or transfer of risk is happening by phone today. Those are going to be the last markets to become electronic. But even there, as we and our clients and our competitors have been introducing systems that help people do their jobs more effectively, those systems are starting to capture the data. And now you have the workflow in a form where machines can analyze it and can process it. And the machines can start talking to each other through APIs. And once that starts going, you can find a market become electronified very rapidly. Case in point would be the foreign exchange market. Yes, there are exchanges in that market. It isn't really an exchange market structure. And yet, it's 99% electronic. Now, even when we look at a particular market, such as the foreign exchange market, and say it's mostly electronic, there we're really talking about spot foreign exchange transactions. That is nearly 100% electronic. But as soon as you get into forwards and options, it's a lot less electronic. Same thing with equities. We're used to thinking of cash equities in round lots as being heavily electronic. But as soon as you get into customized equity derivatives in very large size, not 100 shares, those things are much less electronic today. So we've seen other industries where machines have sort of taken over. I mean, agriculture used to be a major employer, mm -hmm. now not so much, and yet we still have high productivity in the agricultural sector. Yes. Manufacturing, similarly, used to employ lots of people. Factories now tend to be much more robots and machines, fewer people, and yet you still produce millions and millions of cars and widgets a year. How about the trading floor? What will the need for human labor look like in the future as the trading floor becomes more electronified and machines do more of the talking to each other? Interestingly, and this might be a counterintuitive notion, we find that over time, the number of people working on a business, when you look at all the people working on the business through the front, the middle, and the back office, the number of people stays relatively stable over large periods of time. Here's what changes. The volume of business goes up dramatically, mm -hmm. exponentially, and the structure of the business can change. So, for instance, in the equities markets over the last 10 years since the crisis, over the last 20 years, this has been true. The number of people overall working on the business has been relatively stable. Commissions have gone down to a tiny fraction of what they used to be 20 years ago. The volumes are much greater, and the products and services are completely different. So commissions are still important. But there are many other businesses that are as or even more important than the commission basis. And what's also happened is if you look at the people working on the business, they're doing a much higher volume, as I mentioned, the skill sets of that group of people. 
and the functional roles and the activities of those people have changed very dramatically. And so if you look at any role in any business, including the financial services business, that consists of manual processing, that consists of talking on the phone, typing a number, maybe cutting and pasting it into a spreadsheet, reading that number over the phone, all of those workflows are going away. Now, I would submit that that's not really exciting work. It doesn't engage your brain. It doesn't engage your brain. And having very beautifully educated people working on that because that's the way we've always done it, it, to me, that makes no more sense than if I were to compete with my calculator to see who can multiply 10-digit numbers faster, right? The calculator's going to win. It's going to be more reliable. And I don't set myself up as a competitor to the calculator in that game. I would just say, okay, calculator, you win. You do that. And I'm going to go on and do something else. And I think this is true of all of us in the business. If I look at many of the roles that I've had in the past and ask, where are they now? Well, the role just doesn't happen now. Some of the jobs I've had in the past still exist, but there are many of them that have just gone away, and I'm still here, and I'm doing the same thing that I've always been doing, which is solving hard problems with math and software. And the kinds of problems and the scale of the problems and the complexity of the problems has changed enormously, but the basic activity has stayed the same over a very long period of time. The last time you were on the podcast, you were a big proponent of open software in finance and saying it was an industry that had undervalued open software Mm. in the past. So you mentioned APIs earlier. Talk Mm. a little bit about what are APIs and how we're using them here at Goldman. If I look at some of the fundamental shifts in technology that have driven huge changes in our reality and huge creations of new value chains, I would say open software, cloud services, and APIs are definitively the creators of the transformation that we've all seen in our industry and in many other industries in the last few years. Now, say at Goldman Sachs, for a long time, and I might have even mentioned this on that last podcast, we used to have this wonderful little mantra, the only thing crazier than writing all your own software is not writing all your own software. And we used to pride ourselves on that. We used to say everything was homegrown. Everything was homegrown. And looking back, we actually just, uh, it's a very uh, engineer kind of thing to do. We actually just had a birthday party for a piece of software that we've been working on for 25 (laughs) years. And of course, we had a lot of pizza that we ordered out for the party because that's what we do. And when I look back on that, I think we invented some really amazing things back in the late 80s and early 90s, things that everybody would now call a platform, things that people now would call NoSQL, our own programming language, which we invented because Java and Python didn't exist and we needed to create it. And when I look back on that, I don't regret any of it. They were great choices at the time. But the world has changed and we've changed as well. And now when we look at building software, we think, first, can we download it? for free from some open source community and participate and give back to that open source community to make the software better. That's our first move. And if we're certain that that's not going to work, then the backup position is we're going to buy it. And there we greatly prefer to buy software as a service. And there we want to know what the application programming interface, the API is. 
And we care a lot. Is it going to be backwards compatible? Is it well-designed? Is it bulletproof? Is it flexible? Is it simple? Is it impeccably defined in the documentation? We care a lot about the service level agreements, and we want there to be choices. We want there to be an open API, and we want to have a lot of companies that are producing that API so that we have choices about how to consume it. So that's what we do after we've convinced ourselves that open software isn't going to work. And then the last thing that we're going to do, and we're going to do it if it's mission critical to us and differentiating from us and the first two don't work, which is all wrapped up with being mission critical and differentiating, then we're actually going to go build it. And so this reconfiguration, the way we build software, the way everybody builds software around, am I the best producer of some API or am I an astute consumer of an API is a powerful notion. Has that open software dynamic changed the relationship you have with clients? Well, it's certainly changed in that now we're having conversations with clients where we will say, here's some software that's on GitHub. And it shows you how you can use our APIs. It gives you a lot of sample code and a lot of documentation, a lot of libraries that you can plug into your favorite platform or your favorite frameworks. And then here's our API. And actually, we would think of it as a compliment and a sign of success if our clients go to our competitors and say, we really love that Goldman API. We've built our platform on top of it. And if you want to provide us your services, we're happy to have multiple suppliers. And we want you to provide the services to that Goldman API, to that Goldman spec. The spec, as far as we're concerned for the API, belongs to the planet. And it's fantastic. And it's good for everybody. It's also good for us if it becomes a standard. But we're not holding on to it. We're seeing that API layer as open. Now, here's the important point. You might see some articles that confuse open source with APIs. You might have seen some articles that talked about how we're open sourcing SecDB. SecDB is this platform, platform we've been building built, for, yeah. for 25 years that we had the birthday party for. And while that might be one way to frame it, it's certainly not the way I would frame it, right? Like SecDB continues to be this engine that we've invested heavily in and continue to invest in. And we're not taking the source code for SecDB and putting that on GitHub. But instead, SecDB becomes this engine, this platform that our clients can get the value of by asking it questions and it gives back answers. And that's done through the API and all the ways that you can incorporate these SecDB information and risk exchanges into your business are given to you as examples. And that is open software, but all the stuff under the hood is not. Your background is in computer science. You studied yes. at Stanford. How's the role of computer science in financial services changed over the course <laughs> of your career? I mean, we could probably spend hours on that, but give us the short form. Well, I like to tell stories, and so here's one story. So I came out of Stanford, as you said, and out of a Silicon Valley startup. And how did I get to Goldman Sachs? I had never considered a career in finance, but the gentleman who hired me, still our partner here, told the headhunter, I want you to make a list of entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley 
with PhDs from Stanford in math, physics, or computer science and ship them in for an interview. And so I thought I was getting a free trip to New York. I was going to go see some Broadway shows, have some fun. And uh, here you are. And here I am 26 years, <laughs> 26 years later. And so I guess I would put that under the category of uh, I was in the right place at the right time with the right preparation, but I had no idea what I was preparing for. And so it's a story of serendipity. Then I got here. And one of the first things I found myself doing was getting phone calls from Tokyo or Hong Kong at two in the morning and I'd get dressed and I'd hail a cab and I'd go downtown and I'd reboot some machines that had somehow uh, managed to, to stop working during the night. Sounds very glamorous. As they were running some of our risk calculations. And, and I, did, I did think my whole, my whole life has brought me to this, and I was wondering if that PhD was really worth it. And so there was an awful lot of that. And certainly one of the things that I've done really pretty much my whole life is I'm a math and software geek, and so I, I lead with that. I would do math for the popular kids in my class, and I found myself on Wall Street doing math for the traders. And so it was kind of the same idea. And so in a perverse way, it felt very comfortable, but it certainly also felt like a service, right? And uh, like I'm here to do the math and just stay doing that. And that has certainly changed in a really dramatic way over the years. So when I joined this team, we call them strategists or strats, but the world has settled on the term data scientist, right? So people with a math and software skill set doing some quantitative problem solving. I was number 12 in that group, and now that group has joined together with the much larger technology division to be our engineering organization. And now it's roughly 25 to 30% of the firm, and it's order of, of 10,000 yeah. people. Depending and so, on definitions. Yeah. Know, but, but roughly, yeah. Rough numbers, it's essentially that. And now we have engineers, I'm one of them, but there are many who are in leadership positions in our businesses. And we've also found over time that, and this goes back to something I said at the outset, the traditional roles, like trader, banker, sales, are becoming much more complicated. And I'll give you one example. About three years ago, we introduced, working with our stakeholders and our regulators, a role called Traders Who Code. And we thought of many other ways of describing it. One of them would have been Engineers Who Trade. Uh, but Trader has a very specific regulatory construct. And Here's an evolution that has absolutely happened, and we've recognized it, and the industry has recognized it. A long time ago, we used to say, traders commit capital, and the strats or the engineers do not. Strats or engineers write code, build models. The traders do not, and they're not allowed to. And that strict dichotomy worked really well for a long time, but then as markets electronified, as the workflows became digitally captured, then it suddenly was not obvious who's committing the capital because the strats writing some software and the software is putting an order into the exchange. And so it was really clear that you needed people with both skill sets. The idea that you could separate the skill sets into two different human beings was no longer tenable. And so 
that's another way in which the role of engineer of the world, computer scientists on Wall Street has changed. And we're seeing the same thing start to happen in other roles too. And so bankers who code and salespeople who code and compliance professionals who code and lawyers who code. And to my mind, coding, it's a bit like writing an English sentence. It's something that's useful to know how to do. It's useful to have that mindset, algorithmic problem solving. And you might be spending your days writing lots of code, just like you might be spending your days writing lots of English sentences, or it might be a tool that you use in the service of some other job, and that's happening everywhere. As you look around the industry and listen to others who are thoughtful about this, what are some of the other views that you're hearing about the future of finance, and what are others predicting? Here's one view that I hear in my travels, and I'm sure you heard it too, the fintech disruptors. They're going to come in, and they're going to disrupt those banks. I would not recommend to anybody the strategy of just assuming that these big lumbering banks are incapable of making great software and therefore they will fade away into oblivion. Nor would I recommend to anybody the strategy of, well, I'm calling myself a fintech and therefore I don't have to comply with the banking or the money transfer regulations because I'm a technology firm. That strategy can't recommend It's not going to fly in Washington. No, it is certainly not. And so what I would say is that, back to what I was saying earlier about traders who code, right? coding is something that everybody has to get really good at, and banks have to get really good at it and have gotten good at it. And so, again, we'll be talking our own book here about something that we've done at Goldman Sachs. But if you look at our consumer finance business, the Marcus business, from the day we wrote the first line of code to the day we made our first production loan to a consumer, a retail consumer, that elapsed period of time was 11 months. And to do something that's production quality in an institution that's been around for almost 150 years, 150 years now, and to do it at the scale that the U.S. regulators require for know your client, anti-money laundering, capital, everything else, and to do that in 11 months and writing really less than a million lines of code, I think that one example speaks to a lot of things. First of all, when banks who have invested heavily in making banks a great place for engineers to build their careers set their minds to doing something, bank can do something very high quality in a very short time, just as fast as any startup, and they can do it at scale, and they'll be doing it in the ways we described, by combining together APIs and services provided by others. Some of them are open source, some of them are commercial services, and that has become the way of the world. So the way I would see this all developing is back to something we said earlier. So the old dichotomies are giving away to Every firm is producing some services and consuming other services, and the services are defined by APIs. There will be, I would predict, companies inside a particular regulatory boundary, and they will be providing services by API to companies that are outside the regulatory boundary. 
you spent some time, obviously, over the course of your career in Silicon Valley. What could Wall Street learn from Silicon Valley in terms of how it innovates and how it thinks about coding? And, and on the flip side, what's the most important thing that Silicon Valley could learn from Wall Street? So when I look at huge and powerful trend in the world, I think there's an awful lot that banks can learn from cloud services. And maybe not in the way that you would initially expect banks can learn from cloud services. So the first learning is something that goes back a few years. I remember when we here at Goldman Sachs became consumers at scale of cloud services that were produced by others. And the conversation with our peer group in those days, and now I'm talking about five, six, seven years back, was we won't use cloud services because regulation. Well, that was never a syllogism, right? It was more of an excuse. And so something that has happened, and this is something we were in the vanguard of, and it's now happened everywhere, is every financial services firm is consuming cloud services. So the cloud services got better. We and others worked with the cloud service providers to modify and evolve them so that they could work in our regulated environment with our requirements and use cases. And so now everybody's using cloud services. So that's the first learning. The second learning, potentially even more powerful, and we're in the very early days of this, if you look at one of the leading cloud service providers, which of course would be Amazon, well, how did they come on to the idea of Amazon Web Services in the first place? Well, with any fantastically successful business, there will be a variety of creation stories. And one of the creation stories, I wasn't at Amazon, but here's one, which is Amazon looked at its business and said, well, we have this vast capability that we've had to develop so that we can build our website that has products and gets the merchandise to consumers. We've had to build these complex capabilities for computation and data storage. And back to something I mentioned earlier, doesn't make sense for us to be the only consumer of our data and compute capabilities. So let's put an API around it. Let's be really strict about that API encapsulation. You don't get to violate the API. If you want some data and compute services, you don't pick up the phone and call somebody. You call the API. And then once you do that, you start thinking, well, let's provide those services to everybody. The thing that's happening now, and you're seeing this in many industries, and you're certainly seeing it in our industries, is a lot of introspection where companies are looking at the capabilities that they've got in-house, and they're saying, we're not so sure that it makes sense for us to be the best producer of this capability or service if we're the only consumer, but there might actually be a business here if we externalize it and we produce that service for ourselves, and we produce it for a lot of other people who we might have seen as our clients or we might have seen as our competitors traditionally. And so looking inside your business and finding the things you want to produce, the things you want to produce for everybody, the things that you're currently producing just for yourself that you ought to be producing for a much wider universe, and then ultimately the things that you just want to buy in from others. And on the flip side, what could the Valley learn? This is not even a question we would have asked five or six years ago, but what could the Valley learn from the financial services industry? Well, certainly there's a lot to learn. Since the financial crisis, there's been a profound 
lesson learned in financial services that the regulators are important, hugely important, critical stakeholders. And collaborating with the regulators, being deeply transparent with them, providing them services so that they can do their jobs better, recognizing that making the whole system safer and sounder is better for everybody, even though in the short term it might seem complicated and expensive, gets to a better long-term systemic result. And partnering with the regulators to get that done is something that I would say the regulators deserve several victory laps here for having effected great change in the system. And I would also say the banks have completely changed themselves. So for instance, the regulators have greatly upgraded all the bank's capabilities to understand and model their own risks, their cash flow, their income statement, their balance sheet out into the future to demonstrate that they have sufficient capital. That's something that's worked really well. And here we are past the financial crisis and things have been relatively stable for a long time. So I think that lesson of how to engage the regulators to get to a better result systemically as opposed to um, just maybe saying, well, our business hasn't been regulated. Our strategy is going to be predicated on it not being regulated. I would say, here's a simple way to think about regulation. If it's interesting, it will be regulated. If it's not interesting, it won't be regulated. And any other state is just a transient state on on the way from one to the other. Now, you can argue the regulation of the banking system, especially in the U.S., because it was done so quickly and forcefully, has actually made the banks much more competitive, too, ironically. Absolutely. Versus the European banks, where the regulation's been a little bit slower to take hold and, and more complicated, frankly, because of the governance there. It's fragmented. There are a bunch of reasons it didn't evolve the same way. But certainly in the U.S., the banks took their medicine and have much more liquidity and much more capital. And it's a completely different setup. And it's more stable on the other side of that. I think there's that. That would be something I would encourage my friends and colleagues in Silicon Valley to look at that pattern and find what the analogy would be for technology as we start thinking very seriously about data privacy and the systemic importance of the technology firms, what it might look like. We'd be remiss if we went a whole podcast without talking about blockchain at the very (laughs) least, but we'll keep it simple. Of these three, blockchain, artificial intelligence, and quantum computing, which are you most excited about and why? I would put at the top of my list, artificial intelligence. Now, for me to put it at the top of the list, and even to say the word artificial intelligence, there's a, there's a little mini story in there. So I was working in one of the AI labs at Stanford, called the Knowledge Systems Laboratory, back in the day when I was a graduate student. And back in the middle 80s to early 90s, when I was working on this with many other people, we were getting despondent about AI. In fact, we were starting to get embarrassed about even using the words artificial intelligence because the goals that we had set for ourselves, the dreams that we had, were receding rapidly (laughs) into the future. And it was very clear that with the techniques that we had and the computers that we had and the data stores that we had, we were only able to solve toy problems. Now, years later, I still randomly get emails from the internet and they take the form, 
I read your PhD dissertation in 1990, which I always <laughs> have a moment of panic when I read that, certainly reminding myself that I have not read it since, the, since I submitted it. And so somebody's reading it, and then they'll go on to say, and I've implemented the algorithms, and the algorithms work really well, which is a major relief. But with a bigger data set? <laughs> well, that's it. I mean, there's been a huge amount of creativity and breakthroughs, absolutely. But without the power of Moore's Law making huge data stores available and very fast machines, it would have worked. You needed the trifecta of the techniques that have been around for a long time, plus new techniques, and then rapid evolution in machine speeds and in data stores. And when all that came together, you were able to do things that were, seemed intractable before. So now we're at the stage which is an amazing place to be. If you can take a problem and describe it in the following way, here are a billion training examples of the problem. And somehow, by hook or by crook, maybe a bunch of human beings, who knows, they've been categorized into two groups. This is set A and this is set B. My favorite example, the Internet has helped us build a database of billions of pictures of cats. For some reason... Human beings like posting like pictures. Like to share cats. Okay. <laughs> they like to share cats, and then as they share them, they'll mention the word cat. And so it's pretty easy to see this association between image and the word cat. And then there's lots of other images that nobody mentions cat in and around, and we can assume those don't have cats. And so now we've got this incredible database of a billion images, 500 million of them are cats, and 500 million of them are not. We can just crank that into machine learning algorithms that are now standard, and we have something that will now take a new image that no one's ever seen before, and it'll do an amazing job of telling you whether there's a cat in it. That might sound kind of silly, but as it happens, there's a large number of really important problems that you can frame that way. Does this scanning electron micrograph have a picture of cancerous cells or not? Well, if you've had trained pathologists categorize or label a large number of images in their professional judgment and training, it has cancer, it doesn't have cancer, well now you can have machine learning techniques do amazing things. What would be really exciting and what is the dream is how are we going to get from where we are now, which is an amazing place, which is unlocked machine translation and all kinds of things that have been dreams for a long time, how do we get from there to general artificial intelligence and that's the area where I just don't know. I'm not personally aware of the techniques that are out there today that just need computers to get faster and then we'll have automated general intelligence. My view, and there's a variety of views on this, is that we're going to require some great breakthrough in the techniques. But the amount of investment and the amount of academic research that's going into this area is staggering. We've already seen the results that we can achieve with this relatively limited concept of machine learning when we've already got the problems categorized. Now how can we leap into the more complicated world where the distribution is not stationary, we don't have all the instances of the problem pre-labeled as this is a cat, this is not a cat, like how are we going to solve that? That's a huge and interesting problem and there'll be all kinds of transformations on the other side. I would put shortly after that quantum computing. Now, I and many others have been a skeptic, but more recently as I've seen what some of the quantum hardware companies and software companies are actually producing, 
And it's super hard. I think the notion that we're going to have some magical new kind of computer that's a quantum computer and it can do everything faster, I don't really see that happening. I actually don't see that happening in our lifetimes. But taking very specific and very important problems, they could be problems in the life sciences, they could be problems in finance, they could be chemical and physical simulations of various kinds, and framing them as a quantum experiment, which can be done in a chip, which would then be joined with the general purpose computer, I think there's a huge amount of investment going on there, and there's going to be some huge breakthroughs there. So I would put blockchain last. Now, spend a lot of time thinking about blockchain over the years. And here's something that's exciting to me, being a computer scientist, it's a particularly interesting solution to a problem that's been around in computer science since the 1980s. It's called the Byzantine generals problem. You've got a bunch of generals arrayed on the field. Some of them are loyal, some of them are not. Communication on the battlefield is noisy. In the face of all of that, how do you get the loyal generals to agree on the battle plan? And blockchain, the Bitcoin blockchain, is actually a solution for exactly that problem. You have a lot of people who might be running the correct protocol. They might not be. How do we all reach agreement on which blocks are legitimate parts of the blockchain? Now, the skeptic in me would say a blockchain is a particular kind of distributed database that solves the Byzantine general's problem. Distributed databases are notoriously difficult to manage and maintain and build. And the other question you ask is, is Byzantine security, that level of security with that level of noise and unreliability, is that really what's needed for most real world problems or is it overkill? And so I think there is some hype component, like let's do everything on the blockchain. It reminds me a little bit of the early days of the internet. Let's, let's do pet food on the internet, let, you know, every possible thing on the internet. So I think we're going through that iteration. And then on the other side, there's a lot that you can imagine being done and needing doing in the financial system when it comes to payments and when it comes to stores of value. There's a lot of the payment rails and the records, they're still relatively antiquated. And with some kind of a blockchain going to be part of the solution it is possible it's a work in progress why are we and others working on it because what you would get if that exists is really valuable right now an important problem in finance is we might agree to trade a security but it usually takes two business days for the security and the cash to change hands that's the settlement cycle and we've learned that having the execution cycle happen on the order of a microsecond or even nanoseconds, and then having the sediment cycle take two business days, that's really, really slow. And, and risky. And risky, exactly. Yeah. There's so many things that can go wrong while you're executing all those trades, but you haven't actually seen the cash come out of your bank account, and it's not going to come out for two days, right? It can take a, a while to wake up to problems. And so bringing those more into alignment. Now, I don't think you want instantaneous execution clearing a settlement of every transaction. I think you want the execution to happen rapidly, and then you want a bunch of transactions to accumulate over a small settlement window, and then you settle those. But if you could do that more rapidly, if you could do that in the order of seconds or minutes, because you've digitized the assets and the 
assets are represented natively in a digital form, not in some kind of paper certificate that's been scanned or stored somewhere, but their original existence is as a token on a blockchain. And then if you could have a unit of value that had the full faith and credit of the government behind it, and that that was also natively digitized, and you could deliver versus payment with those two digital assets, that would be something that greatly increases systemic safety and soundness. So it's still out there. It's important. There's a lot of work happening on it. Will the eventual answer incorporate elements of blockchain? I would say that's likely, and it's a work in progress. Finally, just to wrap up, we talked a little bit about your career, your computer science background, how you end up in finance. You were also an entrepreneur for a bit. Talk a little bit about that and how you ended up back at Goldman and what you learned from starting a business that translates to the way you do your job now. So in my last startup, I, I would put this under the category of having a great idea, clear vision of the future, and terrible timing. The idea was software as a service. Give us your trades and we'll give you your risk. And we had the idea at a time way before software as a service as a term or a concept existed and way before all the enabling software, the middleware and the cloud services existed. And so a difficult economic proposition then when we had More to spend to build, so yeah. much just on the switches and the routers and the database licenses and all of that, whereas now you just pay as you go to your cloud service providers and they scale as you scale and everybody's happy. So that was a very different time. Here are a couple lessons that I took out of that experience, which was brutal and wonderful. You only have a sale of your product or service if you've convinced your prospective client that they have an unbearable pain or burden or problem and you alone have the solution to it. And then they will pay money for that service. That sounds obvious maybe, but in the hype of the dot-com boom, that core principle of who's probably really solving such that they will pay real cash money f for that service, that kind of got forgotten. And so when all the hype boiled away, the only companies that survived were the ones who remembered that. So that's one thing. The other thing I learned is when you're building software on a tight budget because you've raised some money from your investors and the dot-com bubble has burst and there's no possibility of raising more money from those investors. So you've got what you've got and you've got to build the software that solves the problem that the real customers pay money for in a limited amount of time. The only way to do that is to have extreme clarity about what are we building? Why are we building it? Who's the primary client for whom we change our design to ensure that they're satisfied? Who is the team leader who's accountable? Who are the people on the team? What are the binary measures of success? And has everyone on the team committed to the success of the project and given up their right to complain? And so that framework for building software was what allowed the company that I and some of my colleagues had started to survive. And that focus on what's valuable to the client, not what we think is valuable. And so I learned that. I was completely fried by the time we <laughs> sold the company, and I went to the beach, and I just sat there staring at the ocean for a few months. And in the middle of that, Gary Cohn, who was head of the securities division at the time, later president of Goldman Sachs, called me up, and he said, 
Marty, I heard you sold your company. Congratulations. I heard you retired. That's ridiculous. <laughs> and I'm calling to share with you that you're coming back to Goldman Sachs. And so those of us who know Gary know that that's the kind of approach that he would take to the take very to, direct. Take to this very direct. And so he said, oh, we really miss you in the commodities business. And I said, I'm really burned out on commodities. I'd consider anything but commodities. And he said, how about banking? And I said, well, I guess I need to remind you that I don't know anything about banking. And he said, great. And so the idea was put someone who was a derivatives strategist in banking and maybe something interesting will happen. The really interesting thing that happened is I brought that startup experience, those two lessons I learned, into the great, vastly bigger enterprise of, of Goldman Sachs. And that idea that we're here to serve our clients, and that's the reason we're here, and there is no other reason that we're here. And then also how to build software that meets the project specifications that are well-defined and unambiguous and does it on time, and doing it at an institutional scale, like being able to impart that and share that not just with 10 or 20 engineers, but with 10,000 engineers has been an amazing experience. Well, Marty, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jake. Always a pleasure. That concludes this episode of Exchanges of Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. And for more from Goldman Sachs experts, as well as influential policymakers, academics, and investors on market-moving topics, check out our new podcast, Top of Mind at Goldman Sachs, hosted by Allison Nathan, a senior strategist in the firm's research division. This podcast was recorded on July 15th, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast is not financial research, nor a product of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.